War during the Nixon years to reality in more recent decades. Partly a U.S. story. It's fascinating to see the U.S. military went from being a reluctant recruit, in fact, had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the drug war, to being a more enthusiastic participant after the Cold War was over. Actually, strategically using the war on drugs to justify expensive programs that previously had Cold War origins. That's Peter Andreas, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Peter Andreas on drugs and war. The drugs and war nexus is an old story involving not just criminal gangs, but states. Just go back to the U.S. wars in Vietnam and Laos in the 1960s and 70s, or in Central America in the 1980s, and more recently in Afghanistan to see the connections. Alliances with drug dealers and cartels were part of Washington's playbook, albeit mostly secret. Covert operations need covert funding, and drugs are always a handy cash crop. Culturally, the topic always attracts attention. There have been a slew of Hollywood movies from clear and present danger to kill the messenger, as well as TV shows and novels. Alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, yes, you heard it, coffee, opium, amphetamines, and cocaine intersect with the history of conflict. Drugs and war have grown up together and become addicted to each other. Our guest today is Peter Andreas. He's John Hay Professor of International Studies at Brown University. His articles appear in The Guardian, The Nation, and The New York Times. He's the author of many books, including Killer High, A History of War in Six Drugs. He spoke at the University of Denver in March 2020. And now, Peter Andreas. Let me first start by telling you, how did I get hooked on this topic, History of War in Six Drugs, in the first place? I can remember vividly, it was the night of September 5th, 1989, George H.W. Bush was giving his first televised address to the nation, holding up a bag of crack cocaine. And he pointed to it and basically declared, not just a drug war, but a militarized drug war. He said, we'll for the first time make available the resources of the the, uh, U.S. Defense Forces. Uh, He called it a just cause. And then three months later, late December, he actually invaded Panama, Operation Just Cause, and, and arrested its leader, Noriega, on cocaine trafficking charges. It was arguably, not arguably, it was, the most expensive drug bust in human history. Ever since then, there's been growing alarm over how drugs are empowering insurgents, terrorists, traffickers, gangs, and so on. This is perceived as a major and growing security threat to states. But I wanted to figure out, well, how new is this really? Because, frankly, there's a severe case of historical amnesia that afflicts issues of drugs in general, but certainly the so-called drugs conflict nexus is what they call it in the policy world. So I wanted to go back not just years and not just decades, but actually centuries. And it turns out, if you have a more 
deep dive view of engagement with history, that it's big powerful states that have been the biggest beneficiaries of the drugs conflict relationship. And in fact, the first narco states, not places like, like Afghanistan or Panama under Noriega, no, it's Great Britain. Narco, a narco state, but not just a narco state, but a narco empire. If you think about the sheer importance of the opium trade, the tea trade, caffeine, my drug of choice, I'm hooked on it, um, and taxing things like tobacco and cigarettes. Or we talk about narco-terrorists and narco-insurgents, narco-guerrillas today, the FARC in Colombia, the Taliban in Afghanistan. Well, George Washington's Continental Army was also a drug-funded insurgency. It's called tobacco. Tobacco was the quintessential conflict commodity. It it funded the American Revolution. It was a legal drug, but nicotine is actually more addictive than most of these other drugs. If you forget everything about the the talk, drugs drugs and war grew up together and became addicted to each other. Drugs made war, and war made drugs. Viewing history of war through this lens just gives us a different take. We see things that we otherwise wouldn't have paid attention to or given enough credit to. And it helps answer key questions about drugs and about war, including it actually helps explain partly the American Revolution itself. Um, It was crucially important in World War II, and it's obviously important, uh, self-evidently so, in today's drug wars, which have come to take on the characteristics of a real war. So what, are, what do I mean by drugs? Well, they have to be psychoactive substances. So they're not, not all drugs are covered. Not penicillin, for example. Not antibiotics. Not the future vaccine we hope to have for the virus that's afflicting us all. Identify six particularly important so-called war drugs, the drugs of war. First and most importantly, it goes back the farthest in history, is alcohol. Beer and wine in ancient times, there's evidence that the actual creation of of grain uh, agriculture was partly motivated by beer. There's some archaeological and anthropological evidence of this. But wine, I mean, basically, we can't explain how France today is the most famous wine-growing region in the world unless we look at how Romans conquered previously beer-drinking territory. Before the Romans arrived, much of that area and beyond was all about beer. As the Roman legions moved north, so did the vines. And and interestingly enough, as the Roman Empire retreated and fragmented, so did drinking tastes. So Britain had been subdued by by the Romans. Wine was brought there, but then after the retreat... Uh, beer came back with a vengeance. The, the, interestingly enough, the, the, the Vikings were particularly fond of beer. They actually brewed it on their ships in their attacking raids. And people don't quite realize that the, 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 the skull, it actually meant using a human skull as a vessel for drinking. Nicotine, one of the most addictive substances we use. It didn't enter the story until hundreds of years later with the conquest of the Americas. But once it took hold, it became globalized. And part of the globalization of tobacco use, especially in the form of cigarettes, is a war story. 
third, my favorite drug of choice, caffeine. Coffee and tea, of course, but I'm also talking about caffeinated soft drinks. Now, this is the most widely used psychoactive substance in the world. It's considered a benign drug, so much so that a lot of people don't even think of it as a drug, but its relationship to war has certainly been far um, from benign. Fourth is opium. People aren't surprised to see opium make the list. After all, we think drugs and war, often people think immediately about the opium wars of the mid-19th century as derivatives morphine, heroin, which came much later. It extends all the way to the present-day Afghanistan. We simply can't explain why Afghanistan today is the source of 80 or 90 percent of the world's opium without including war. Amphetamines, drug number five. This is the first sort of synthetic drug, fully synthetic drug that makes the list. We went from natural to semi-synthetic to fully synthetic, purely produced in the laboratory. Industrialization of drugs arrived perfectly timed with the industrialization of warfare, so this is primarily a World War II story and beyond. And sixth and not least is coca, the raw material of cocaine. Its importance to war is particularly a contemporary phenomenon, but it does go back in time. But I especially focus on modern-day wars against drugs, which are actually disproportionately been focused on uh, cocaine, especially in the Americas. Now, notice what's missing from this list. So these are the top six war drugs. They're basically mass-produced, mass-consumed, highly portable, highly profitable, used for leisure, not just for medicinal purposes. But there's certain drugs that are curiously missing. First and foremost, you might think, well, cannabis. It's the most popular illicit drug in the world. It has, there has to be a chapter. Weed in War was the title of that chapter. It's kind of a letdown after looking at the importance of these other drugs. It's not that it doesn't matter. Napoleon's troops in Egypt brought hashish back to Paris. And um, plenty of American GIs smoked dope in, in Vietnam. But it just not quite as prominent as these other drugs. Notice what else is missing, psychedelics. Now maybe it's self-evident why psychedelics wouldn't actually be on the list. Not particularly uh, conducive to soldiers fighting efficiently, whether uh, on mushrooms or LSD, though the CIA did plenty of experimentation for LSD in terms of, of during the Cold War. Or another drug, take cot. Is a you know Somali pirates are hooked on cot, the Horn of Africa. It's a hugely popular drug, but it's it's almost exclusively confined to this one region in the world. It hasn't been globalized like these other drugs. It's not that it's not important. It's hugely important local in that particular place in time, but it does it just doesn't rise as prominently as the others. But then, what about the relationship between drugs and war? What, what, what exactly is that relationship? Well, I argue that there's actually five relationships, and they're all quite different from each other. So I'll just very quickly walk you through it. One is war while on drugs. What I mean by that is combatant drug use during wartime, but it also civilian drug use um, uh, back home. So on the home front and on the war front. The work of war is stressful. In fact, what they're asking you to do, kill, 
doesn't, doesn't necessarily come naturally. So the stresses, anxieties, and so on of war are greatly facilitated by various psychoactive substances, whether in preparation for battle, the conduct of battle itself, celebrating victories, or healing your wounds in defeat, including psychological wounds. The second dimension is war through drugs. Fundamentally different than war while on drugs, it's war through drugs. This is a political economy argument, meaning literally the how do you fund your conflict? And today we think, oh, well, drugs and war, that means Afghanistan, that means Colombia, and so on. But it goes back centuries, and it's really a great power story more than non-state actors. This is war, drugs to finance war, and also war, um, um, drugs as a weapon of war in some cases. Third dimension, war for drugs. This is actually more rare. The actual objective of the war is to control drug markets with the opium wars, the quintessential example of war for drugs. But it turns out to be more rare than war through drugs. Often in analysis, they've confused the two. Drugs do much more to facilitate conflict than they do to actually cause conflict, but not always. Fourth, war against drugs. This is what we're most familiar with. Actually, this is just one of many dimensions. What I mean by this is not the metaphor, war against drugs. That starts with Nixon, but he didn't call in the troops. He sort of symbolically signaled the importance of declaring war on drugs. But it wasn't until the 80s, and especially after the Cold War, that we really militarized drug enforcement, both domestically to some extent, but also at the border and internationally. Um, I mean, think about the proliferation of SWAT teams, something we kind of take for granted now. They existed before the militarization of the drug war, but they really took off in the 80s, and especially the 90s. They started out with a few dozen around the country, that now we have hundreds of SWAT teams, all pre-9-11, so almost exclusively driven. These are militarized police units, almost exclusively driven by the war on drugs. And internationally, you know, countries such as Mexico, their militaries are essentially have become frontline anti-drug soldiers. Last but not least dimension is drugs after war, the legacy of drugs from war. So, you know, we think about soldiers and nations and peoples winning and losing wars. Well, actually, different drugs have also been winners and losers. Drug production, trafficking drug taste, the legal status of drugs have actually been profoundly shaped by the outcomes of war. So, so far I've talked in a rather summary form, somewhat abstract, purely analytically. Let me just tell you some stories. Let's start with the American Revolution. What does the American Revolution look like if we look at it strictly, or not just strictly, but add a drug lens to analyze the American Revolution? It's particularly relevant because obviously we're, we're in the U.S., but it's relevant because the five dimensions that I outlined, unlike most wars, all five of those dimensions are evident in the American Revolution. First, the outbreak. I would say you can't really fully understand or even explain the outbreak of the American Revolution without understanding the political economy of rum, the role of taverns in plotting revolution, and the role of tea in protesting British rule. 
The tea story is the one we're most familiar with, the Boston Tea Party. I hope I don't have to convince you that tea was part of the mega rum, but it very much fits within this framework. But rum is less well-known. My home state now, uh, Rhode Island, actually was the number one rum producer in late colonial uh, New England. It was the number one export of the New England colonies. They were utterly dependent on the importation illicitly of, of molasses from the French West Indies to produce, to keep the distilleries going. The British tolerated the smuggling business for decades because they were busy doing other things. But once they started cracking down on this smuggling and other forms of smuggling, the merchants not only balked but rebelled. This included actually the founder of my university, John Brown. He sort of led the way in, in pushing back violently against uh, the British in, in Rhode Island. The British actually had a militarized crackdown. They t- basically, the Customs Service was so utterly corrupt that they turned the British Royal Navy into a Customs um, Service. Kind of interesting parallels to the militarization of drug enforcement today. Interestingly, the Sons of Liberty, you know, where do plotters of the American Revolution meet? They don't meet at schools. They don't meet at church. They don't meet at home. They don't meet in parks. They almost always met in taverns. The story isn't just about alcohol, but actually the consumption of alcohol in a particular setting and who is actually doing the drinking. John Adams himself, after the revolution, said, we should not blush, I'm paraphrasing, we should not blush to recognize the importance of molasses in the making of the American Revolution. What he meant by that was rum. So taverns actually provided a context for plotting that was too often overlooked. Of the work was also interestingly can be through a, a lens of drugs. Rum rations were provided on all sides. There's fear of mutiny if you don't keep the rum rations going. George Washington would provide double rum rations when it got extra cold. There's fascinating stories of the Continental Army raiding British camps while the British are drunk successfully. They, they celebrate their successful raiding by getting drunk on the British supplies. And then the British counter-attack and raid and after they're drunk. Lots of stories like this. And then I already mentioned tobacco was the quintessential conflict commodity. There's no way they can secure a loan from France before France formally joins the revolution without t- using tobacco as collateral. In fact, the British were so well, awa- well aware of the financial importance of tobacco, that they would burn tobacco fields wherever they found them. Uh, some of these tobacco fields were actually owned by Thomas Jefferson himself. Then the aftermath. Before the Revolution, tea was the caffeinated beverage of choice. After all, we're a British colony. You drink tea. And then when you want to you know, rebel, you basically make it patriotic to not drink tea anymore. So what do you turn to instead? Coffee. America, by the late 19th century, is the biggest coffee importer in the world. It took a while. First, the, American, uh, the other countries in the Americas had to basically uh, uh, go independent from Spain but, and Portugal. But once they did, and c- caffeine, your caffeine hit could come from closer to home, 
the U.S. turns away from tea and toward coffee. And that can't really be explained without the American Revolution because the British go on drinking tea, of course, as we all know. Same with rum. Rum, as much as we produced it in the colonies, was considered a British drink. In fact, the British kept giving rum rations to their soldiers, and in fact, the British Royal Navy got rum rations all the way to the 1970s, believe it or not. Pretty watered-down stuff, but they still got their rum rations because it was hugely important. The Americans, though, they switched to whiskey. Rum was considered, ah, it's a British drink, and we have to rely on imports to produce it. Guess what? We can produce whiskey more cheaply, build self-sufficient, new nation, you want to be self-sufficient, resourceful, and as we move west, we're growing corn, and we can use corn to produce whiskey. So this country, the alcoholic beverage of choice ships from rum to whiskey, and it can't be explained without the American Revolution. Similarly, the Whiskey Rebellion is a rebellion against taxes. So, you know, the mantra of the American Revolution was no taxation without representation. Well, some people didn't want taxation even with representation, right? What the federal government did, this was a new government, they basically, you need money to run. Even if you're an anti, founded on the anti-taxes, you need money to run. And guess what? You especially need it if you want some kind of fighting capacity. So Alexander Hamilton in particular turned to alcohol taxes to justify how? We have to go fight the barbarian pirates, the Barbary pirates. Um, so they impose a fairly modest tax on whiskey, and the, the, the distillers in, in western Pennsylvania aren't particularly happy, so they rebel. Hamilton and, 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 and Washington raise a militia that pretty quickly suppresses uh, the rebellion. They were particularly peeved at the rebellion because guess who the number one um, buyer of western Pennsylvania whiskey is? The U.S. Army. So shouldn't rebel against the hand that feeds you. Last but not least, whiskey can be thought of as a particularly potent ethnic cleanser. Westward expansion, yes, was facilitated by disease, and yes, was it facilitated by bullets, um, but often forgotten is just the sheer importance of ardent spirits in subjugating, often actually exterminating uh, indigenous populations that had no prior experience with hard alcohol. Let's fast forward. 20th century, the most destructive war in human history, World War II. Sun Tzu once famously said that speed is the essence of war. He did not have amphetamines in mind, but he would have been pretty impressed at the war facilitating role of speed. Um, the Nazis pioneered pill-popping on the battlefield. They literally handed out millions of doses of meth called pervitin, produced in a fact, mass-produced in a factory in Berlin. This was, this was especially given out in the early stages of the war, especially the Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg depends on speed, uh, outmaneuvering your, your opponent, and um, surprising them. It also requires you to go for days without sleep. Perfectin helps. Meth helps. Um, but it wasn't just the Nazis. The British then started using them, and the Americans. Uh, there's an over-the-counter drug, benzodrine. It was, it was considered a miracle drug to cure you all kinds of things, obesity, depression, and yes, keeps pilots awake and keeps soldiers going during the war. And the Japanese, 
not only gave him the kamikaze pilots, for obvious reasons, but to defense industry workers, to keep them working harder and longer without needing rest. Well, look at China. We can't really explain how Japan funded its occupation of China in the late 1930s without looking at the opium economy. China was the single largest producer and consumer of opium at this point. The Japanese invasion essentially allowed the Japan to extract the resources from this trade, using it as a way to literally self-finance their occupation of China. From the Chinese perspective, the Japanese were using opium as a weapon of war. From the Japanese perspective, it was just a pragmatic choice, a way to fund the occupation. I mentioned that drugs are winners and losers of war. Well, here the drug winners are first amphetamines. Uh, They really take off in the 1950s in the aftermath of the war. The U.S. military, in fact, continues to use them in Korea and then later in Vietnam, but in much more potent form, often forgotten. There's such an oversupply of military-grade meth in Japan that it's dumped on the civilian population. And Japan experiences its first drug epidemic in the 1950s, leading to the criminalization of amphetamines. But, and to this day, illicit amphetamine is the illicit drug of choice in Japan. Or take a more benign drug, caffeine. Instant coffee was an instant hit when it was introduced for the first time on the battlefield. First World War I, but especially World War II, and then became entrenched after World War II. You can imagine why that particular form of caffeine would be so useful on the battlefield. But the things we take for granted are the coffee break. This was first introduced for industri- defense industry workers uh, during the war, but after the war in the 1950s, it became institutionalized. Well, a coffee break, you take a coffee break. It just became natural. Cigarettes, huge winner, especially American cigarettes. Now, first of all, during the war itself, a new labor force entered the market market in a a way never before, which was women working, uh, uh, taking jobs that men deployed had previously had. Women had newfound independence, newfound autonomy, newfound financial resources, and they turned took cigarettes like never before, becoming a new consumer base that outlasted the war. And then the war itself got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people hooked on nicotine that hadn't been hooked on it before, creating a a vastly larger consumer base than before the war. And American cigarette companies in particular had a leg up, both domestically and internationally. Think about this, the, um, the Marshall Plan. Think of the Marshall Plan as this, you know, altruistic uh, uh, move to, to help rebuild Europe. It included lots of cigarettes. And for, say, post, immediate post-war Berlin, cigarettes were not just consumed because uh, uh, people, you know, wanted the hit. But they actually, um, in the immediate aftermath of the war, it was actually treated as a more um, stable and reliable currency and paper currency. So the, the immediately after the war, the importance of cigarettes as a, as a currency of choice was extraordinary, not just in Germany, but especially in Germany. And then a particularly interesting story is the story of Coca-Cola, the most, world's most famous caffeinated soft drink. Well, how did it become the world's most famous caffeinated soft drink? Well, 
Coca-Cola enjoyed a near monopoly access to U.S. soldiers through government contracts. What this meant is that Coca-Cola committed itself to providing a bottle of Coke for a nickel to every soldier deployed around the world. And how did they manage to do that? They had U.S.-funded bottling plants built at U.S. bases all over the world. And when the war ends, those bottling plants are still going strong. And Coca-Cola has a leg up over all of its competitors globally. Coca-Cola was so supreme, such a, um, a symbol of American power that you know, people came up with terms like Coca-Colonization. But the story of Coca-Cola's prominence and dominance of American, Americanization as globalization is a World War II story. So those are the drug winners. There's also drug losers, the most prominent of which is legal cocaine, so much so that we forget that there was a thriving, perfectly legal, pharmaceutically industry-organized cocaine industry in East Asia, organized by the Japanese. They produced coca in Java. Well, the American occupation, invasion and occupation, wiped out the legal cocaine industry permanently. So much so that we often forget that Java ever actually produced coca. We think of it as strictly an Andean leaf. Cocaine is strictly an illicit drug produced in the Andean region, but actually it had this moment in time. Now, the U.S. preference for prohibiting cocaine predates the war. goes back to earlier in the 20th century, but it wasn't until defeat of Japan and the U.S. as a superpower that it could actually globalize its preference for drug prohibition, in this case, including prohibiting cocaine. You're listening to Peter Andreas on Drugs and War. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order CDs of this program and his book, Killer High, A History of War and Six Drugs, by calling 1-800-444-1977. We're offering you, our listeners, written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Our website is alternativeradio.org. All right, fast forward to the contemporary drug wars. As I said, it went from metaphor during the Nixon years to reality uh, in more recent decades. Partly a U.S. story. It's fascinating to see the U.S. military went from being a reluctant recruit, in fact, had to be dra- dragged kicking and screaming into the drug war, to being a more enthusiastic participant after the Cold War was over. Actually, strategically using the war on drugs to justify expensive programs that previously had Cold War origins. You know, over the horizon backscatter radar system created to track uh, uh, Soviet bombers. How do we justify that anymore? Ah, oh, we're going to track drug flights over the Caribbean. That's what we use it for. Even NORAD right here in Colorado, they even came up with an anti-drug mission. For the, and this, this is all pre-9-11, remember. Mexico in particular has militarized the drug war, so much so that the Mexican military is essentially an anti-drug force. And it's not just the state side, but it's the trafficker side as well. And here there's been this kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest where private armies run by trafficking organizations are quite literally armies in the sense that 
they're substantially based on recruits from the military, defectors from the military, retired people from the military. They're using military-grade weaponry, right, and strategies. The most brutal of Mexican trafficking organizations, Los Zetas, was actually a special forces operation which was trained by the U.S. as an anti-drug force. And they broke away, defected, and for a while were the most brutal trafficking organization Mexico had seen. And they, it wasn't just them. Their presence and the way that they moved into new territory created a, a sort of arms race with other trafficking organizations. Mexico has had more drug-related deaths in the last decade and a half than all the casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. So although a lot of traditional you know, security scholars or legal scholars, Mexico doesn't make the radar when they talk about war. But given the sheer magnitude of the deaths and the firepower used on both sides, state and non-state, arguably we need to broaden our conceptualization of what war is. In fact, we've blurred the lines between war fighting and crime fighting. And here, cocaine is really the leading target, the main uh, rationale for militarization in the 80s and especially more recently. Since we're talking about Afghanistan a little bit, counter-narcotics and counterinsurgency have a very uneasy, awkward relationship. Here's the longest war in American history happens to take place in the world's leading producer of opium. Unfortunately, those two missions, counter-narcotics and counterinsurgency, actually conflict. If you actually go after the poppy growers to go after drugs, it's the fastest way to create new recruits for the Taliban. And because of the geopolitical situation, you end up awkwardly turning a blind eye, glossing over the drug corruption of your own allies in the Afghan government. Just a few concluding thoughts. I want to open it up and have more of a discussion and answer some questions. What does the future look like? Well, we're not about to have a drugs-free world, we know. We're unfortunately, we're not about to have a war-free world either. So I think we can confidently predict that the drugs-war relationship will continue on, thriving into the future, even if it takes there's you know, elements of continuity and, and change. The last set I'll leave you with is more of a provocation. Can we think of war itself as a drug? I mean this in two ways. One is literally the, the um, chemical effect that war has on the brain. There's lots of war memoirs, um, diaries, uh, and accounts of soldiers and generals and war, journalist war correspondents describing war as an addiction. But I don't want to actually um, stretch the definition of addiction too far, but given the fact that we've had the longest war in U.S. history in Afghanistan, it was still not quite over, um, Iraq, um, there's also an addiction to war more generally. I just gave a talk in Colorado Springs. Uh, that's a fully militarized place. There's an addiction to a war machine, if, if not actually to going to war. So maybe war itself, in the end, is the hardest habit to break. Thank you very much for coming. Right, he wants to know about cartels and the relationship to Mexico and the Mexican government's relationship to... The term cartel, 
I avoid it like the plague. It's, I've, I've given up, though. It's, it's so pervasive. I thought, first, it's a journalistic thing, but a lot of scholars, even including those I greatly respect, use it. It was invented in the 80s in Colombia by journalists to describe Medellin traffickers. If you look up the definition of cartel in the dictionary, there's nothing you know, like... Basically, a definition has something to do with you, you're so in control of the market that you actually can almost fix prices, set prices. The reason the drug trade is so extraordinarily violent is precisely because they don't control the market. It's hyper-competitive. So it's an oxymoron to call them cartels. And actually, the decapitation of the main Colombian trafficking organizations has led to a dispersion of smaller trafficking organizations, but they're so wedded to the term cartel that they now call them cartelitos, little cartels. That's an oxymoron, right? Um, now, Mexican trafficking organizations, they adopted the terminology much later, but part of what's going on here is the traffickers themselves embrace the term because it's an ego boost. We are a cartel. We're just like the Colombians were. You know, we're important, right? And so it actually, there's a social construction of the language that everybody buys into it, government officials, the media, and then traffickers themselves. What's the government's involvement in the drug trade? Um, it is fair to say that intentional or not, that the targeting of one trafficking organization, by definition, was going to end up favoring another trafficking organization. And that is, in fact, what has happened. That's part of, a big part of what's fueled the violence in Mexico, is in late 2016, Mexican President Calderón declared an all-out war on the Mexican trafficking organizations sent in the military. And what happens is you've disrupted, I mean, it's already a violent trade, but you've dramatically escalated the violence because you basically, by decapitating or, or partly dismantling an organization, then rival traffickers immediately rush in to, 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 to take advantage. Right? It's an old story, but it becomes much more violent and unstable in the post-2006 period. The history matters here because the PRI, which ran Mexico as an authoritarian democracy, if there's, that's an oxymoron. I mean, basically it was an electoral system, but only the PRI candidates could win. This went for decades. But they had such a firm handle on things, including at the governor level, state by state for so long, that the drug trade, although it thrived, was relatively nonviolent because basically you kept a lid on things. So arguably there was more drug-related corruption back in the you know, 80s than there is today. Violence is now used more than corruption, the balance between those two. You know, but you know, from a trafficker's perspective, your preference is to bypass law enforcement, the state. You can also bully them, that's violence. You can buy them off. So these are like three options. The state's too strong to just bypass. In the past, you buy them off. This goes all the way back to, you know, this is an old story, the founding, I mean, a huge amount of institutionalized corruption in the U.S. colonies in terms of smuggling. It's tolerated by the British government, very little violence. When the British are no longer tolerate corruption, violence breaks out so much so that there's actually revolution. Other questions? Yes. The use of cocaine to fund wars, particularly, say, the Contra Wars in, in the 1980s, uh, in this case, a covert form of financial funding. So you can say, as a general rule, 
the more criminalized the drug, the more the resources from that drug go to stateless actors. So the history of opium, you go from looking at how it's empowered states to empowering warlords to empowering terrorists and insurgents. And you can look at, at other drugs like that too. But however, there's this interesting dimension, which is you can't officially tax illicit cocaine if you're a state, but you can, under particular circumstances, use it to help fund your particular favorite geopolitical cause at the moment. In all cases, geopolitics trumps fighting drugs. Uh, it's true today in the war on terror in, in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and it was true in, in the 1980s and other periods during the Cold War. And so there's this pragmatic calculus of not just accepting but arguably encouraging the funding of the Contras in Central America who are fighting the Sandinistas through cocaine in particular. This is a time when Colombian cocaine is shifting from being transported to the U.S. through South Florida, shifting to land routes through Central America and Mexico. So the historical timing also matters here. And certainly the Noriega story is a Cold War story. Basically, he was deeply involved in cocaine trafficking, but the DEA and the U.S. in general look the other way, and he's actually on the CIA payroll because he's willing to support U.S. geopolitical interests in the region, including supporting the Contras. The problem is it's a big step from saying that there was a tolerance and arguably encouragement of covert funding through cocaine to saying that the cause of the cocaine trade in the U.S. was the CIA. And this is where I basically think it's a slippery slope into seeing drugs, drugs, drugs in everything because ultimately it's a market. That cocaine, including crack, was going to make its way into the market one way or the other. It happened to do so in some ways through Central America, through particular allies of the, of the U.S. because of the geopolitical context. Credible sources, including... U.S. congressional investigators point to the importance of um, cocaine traffickers in helping to fund the Contras. Other questions? Here. Yes. What do you make of the rise in the popular culture, television and movie, connected to funding the Contras with cocaine, CIA activity? What do you make of this cultural shift where we've, we've now largely accepted yes. that the CIA looked the other way? What do I make of the fact that it's now taken for granted that, this, yeah, that the CIA did it, this? I mean, right. the, Sacramento, the original Sacramento Bee, the guy ends up committing suicide. No, this Kill the Messenger, which is the same title of the book by Gary Webb. Uh, and Gary Webb did, in fact, kill himself at the end. For various reasons, Gary Webb got a raw deal. I mean, he basically was ostracized, and the, the mainstream media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, basically... Uh, trashed him, in, you know, and it's quite striking how much that, that happened. But I think some people who read his stuff also interpreted it in a way that maybe even meant it more than he himself meant it. Basically, it went from the CIA tolerated and maybe encouraged cocaine trafficking for geopolitical reasons to the CIA introduced crack in L.A. and they want to poison African Americans, right? So you see the difference in those narratives, but you can quickly go down the blurry lines between those two narratives. But now it's become popularized in the media, partly because it's a historical story. The Cold War, it's like that was then, and, and so it's safer now to talk about these things and, and, and have movies about them and, 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 and so on. Uh, but frankly, 
look ahead down the road we're going to have the same kind of movies about Afghanistan about how the US turned its blind eye to the favored warlords who were geopolitically convenient in Afghanistan and fighting the Taliban the Taliban is totally enmeshed in the drug trade but so are some of the people who the US was was um, relying on to help them with the effort in fact the overthrow of the Taliban itself when they invaded they used forces that were deeply involved in the, in, the, in the drug trade as well. Illicit drugs, the resources that generate from them, over time tend to go to, to non-state actors, even if the state sometimes uses those actors for geopolitical reasons, which is important. On the other end of the spectrum are vastly larger amounts of money generated from taxing booze, taxing tobacco, taxing coffee, taxing tea, right? It peaked historically a while back. So in the 19th century, 30 to 40 percent of the British budget was from alcohol taxes. It's extraordinary high. Um, the U.S. funded its Spanish-American war by increasing taxes on tobacco and, and alcohol. 20th century, though, we introduced the national income tax. So we've radically diversified our, the state's source of funding, so much so that part of what made possible the passage of prohibition, which took effect exactly 100 years ago, January of, 20, of 1920, part of the argument for it was we can afford to do it because we're no longer hooked on alcohol revenue because of the national income tax. So the U.S. had weaned itself to some extent off of alcohol taxes. I mean, they lift prohibition the Depression, partly because they want that revenue back from alcohol. But the point is that, you know, what funds the Pentagon, it's not so much resources from legal drugs, that's part of it, but it's mostly good tax-paying citizens like ourselves, right? If you had to forecast, like, say, 100 years, what would you say would be, like, the six drugs? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of it talk about the robotics revolution and artificial intelligence and, and war, and this is sort of outside my area, but it has some interesting, plausible applications, because if you truly extend that to its logical conclusion, you don't give drugs to robots. They don't need them. But as long as there's boots on the ground, or even a drone operator in a, you know middle of Nevada somewhere trying to stay awake, because it's really boring work, frankly, there's still going to be a kind of drug relationship. So if there's a human element in the story, the war while on drugs remains, even if it's... Now, the drugs themselves, I mean, the future is more and more synthetic, you know, including opioids, right? Uh, fentanyl uh, and so on. Um, all kinds of uh, amphetamine-type type stimulants also increasingly prevalent in poverty. Arguably, USGIs in Vietnam were self-medicating when they smoked dope or got on heroin or whatever. Today, the state's the pusher. You can get a huge range of pills prescribed to you by the government that are pretty addictive. And sometimes you come back hooked on the stuff, and then your prescription is, is cut and you might turn to heroin. Instead, part of the opioid crisis in this country, that's, that's part of the story of the opioid crisis. Yes. Are there examples of drugs being used to pacify a population? Uh, the Chinese certainly think so. Uh, they thought that the opium wars 
did that. I mean, opium use in China skyrocketed after the opium wars, so much so that China eventually threw in the towel and actually became the biggest opium producer. They weren't just importing it from from British India. So it's subject to interpretation, right? So China believed that they were pacified for decades because of of foreign importations of, of opium. They believe that the Japanese poisoned them during World War II with heroin, right? From the Japanese perspective, it was just a way of making money. So um, back to the CIA introducing crack into East L.A. That's a narrative of poisoning and, and pacifying a population, right? Some of it fictional, some of it borderline truthful. But there's, I mean, one story that um, is quite striking is the Germans, retreating Germans at the end of World War II, were so aware that the Soviets were fond of of booze. They were the most famous drunken military in the world, frankly, for for long periods of history, all the way to today, um, that they would leave bottles of booze as they retreated, thinking it would slow the Soviet advance. Um, But what it did is it just made them more abusive, frankly. I mean, there's atrocities and abuses and rapes in Berlin and elsewhere were magnified by the effects of, of alcohol. Yes? So you mentioned kind of a negative relationship between counterinsurgency and counter-narcotics movements in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you could point to that in other regions and maybe shed light on the implications. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, the, the, Afghanistan is a clear case where I think the war on drugs and the war on terror uh, bash into each other and... and War on drugs can actually undermine war on terror. Um, in Colombia, which is really fascinating story and tragic story, frankly, they managed to blur the distinction between counterinsurgency and counter-narcotics by basically funding the Colombian government with billions of dollars, making Colombia at one point the largest recipient of U.S. military aid outside of the Middle East, uh, you know, Plan Colombia, and it was justified as an anti-drug mission, but as first and foremost a counterinsurgency campaign. So the American public had no tolerance after the Cold War to fund anti-communist causes all over the world, but the drug war was a new funding source, and, so, and the Colombian government was perfectly happy to say, yes, give us the money, we're fighting drugs, but really the number one priority of the Colombian government was not fighting drugs, it was fighting insurgents. And it worked. I mean, basically, they got funds that they otherwise would not have received if it was purely, you know, part of fighting communism. Uh, and it's, 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 you know, they played Washington brilliantly in that regard, and they had accomplices uh, in Washington as well in, in doing that. So that's an example where counter-narcotics was strategically used to facilitate a counter-insurgency operation that otherwise would have been a difficult sell to the American people. Yes. Yeah, the question is, is China using fentanyl to poison America and pacify America? Um, I think there's actually very little evidence that it's a deliberate uh, move on the part of China to, to poison the West. Um, uh, even if in practice, it's a lot easier to actually measure impact than intent. And fentanyl is a perfect illustration of that I mean, I can imagine people speculating this is China's uh, revenge for the opium wars, but that doesn't mean it's true. It's fascinating because historically, during the Cold War, 
The U.S. blamed Red China for flooding the U.S. with drugs, and it sold politically. Red China at the time was undergoing the most draconian and successful war against drugs in human history. 1950s, China had wiped out China's status as the number one drug consumer and producer in the world. All that production moved south to the Golden Triangle. But at the same time that that's happening, U.S. politicians are blaming Red China for importing. Uh, and during the Cold War, they blamed Cuba for being the culprit for cocaine importation into the U.S. But the fact is that Cuba in 1959, before the Cuban Revolution, was far more enmeshed in the cocaine trade than it was after the revolution. In fact, a lot of the criminal actors in the cocaine trade in Cuba in the Batista regime era, when the revolution came, they self-deported themselves to Florida and elsewhere. So the Cubans who were most involved in the cocaine trade were not Fidel Castro. It was actually Cubans in, in, in Miami. But the narrative was, you know, they're sending cocaine to poison America. Now, there are examples of drug traffickers justifying what they're doing as, you know, sticking it to the Yankees. So Carlos Leder, one of the most famous sort of pioneers of cocaine smuggling from Colombia to the U.S. using small airplanes. He actually at one point ran an island in the Caribbean uh, uh, for, uh, to, to smuggle cocaine into the South Florida. He, he, part of his self-identity was to stick it to the gringos. Yes. Big question, so repeat it. What do you think of the war on drugs? Do you think it works? Can we stop supply? Um, that's a whole other discussion. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to um, stick up for the war against drugs. I don't think it's worked particularly um, effectively, but um, you know, judged purely on its instrumental effect in stopping supply, I think most people agree it's not worked particularly well. It's just there's disagreements. Does that mean you escalate even further, which is often the knee-jerk reaction, or to find an alternative um, way of dealing with it? I think we've moved in that direction with cannabis, obviously. Um, and it's fascinating. I mean, U.S. is probably now maybe the world's largest producer of cannabis. No one's more fond of the Border Patrol, arguably, than cannabis, domestic cannabis producers because they're keeping the Mexican stuff out. It's the easiest drug to interdict at the border because it's bulky and it smells and, and it's less sophisticated than cocaine and heroin smuggling. So it's pot protectionism. We have huge growth industry domestically, legalized in some states, decriminalized in others, and it's part of a militarized war against drugs in Mexico. Thank you. That was Peter Andreas on Drugs and War. He spoke at the University of Denver in March 2020. Peter Andreas teaches international studies at Brown University and is the author of Killer High, A History of War and Six Drugs. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and we're in our 34th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. You can order CDs of this program and his book, Killer High, by calling 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is one 800 
444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a transcript or PDF of this program at no charge, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? I've got my dial locked on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta.